this week on Hope for the Broken. People often ask, who is this man? Who is this Antichrist? I don't know if he's currently alive. I don't know if he's yet to be born. I don't know any of that. But we have clues as to what he would do. And so we've got to read God's word, judge everything according to his word, look for clues, but ultimately just trust the stirring of the Holy Spirit that resides within you. Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. God's got it. But just be perceiving and watch God do his thing. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series in the book of Daniel. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part 13, titled... The future is clearly fuzzy. We are approaching the landing strip of our sermon series through the Old Testament book of Daniel. How many of you guys have enjoyed the study through Daniel, those of you that have been with us? I have learned so much. It's been so much fun to study this and alongside with you and have learned a ton. And uh, man, I absolutely love it. Today we come to what I believe to be the most fascinating chapter in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Daniel chapter 11. As we embark on a message that I have entitled, The Future is Clearly Fuzzy. The future is clearly fuzzy. I reached a milestone in my life this year. I uh, began requiring the, the use of reading, reading glasses in order to read. Uh, anybody else re- wear readers? Man, this is a young crowd then. Okay, all right, uh, very good. Uh, just me. Um, but it seems like it's happened all of a sudden. I remember when I was a kid and my parents started holding the newspaper. Okay, the newspaper is this thing that you used to get in the mail and it would tell you the news. And I remember when they would hold the newspaper and they would do like this in order to see and I would think, man, they are old. Man, they are old. Now I'm in that category. It's great. Uh, one day I was seeing fine and the next day I'm having to increase the font size on my iPhone. Anybody relate to me? Right, you can now read my text messages from 10 feet away. All right, uh, just is the deal. And sometimes we need help seeing. And we get to a point in our life where we need help seeing. When it comes to the study of scripture, there are some scriptures that seem to be evidently clear to us. We read it and we say, I get it, I understand. And there are other scriptures where we say, I don't get that. I don't understand that. And we need help seeing it. Well, Daniel chapter 11 has both of those categories in it. In fact, this chapter can be subdivided into two parts, which will actually serve as our outline here this morning. There is a part of prophecy that has already been fulfilled. The first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11 have already historically been fulfilled. And then the final 10 verses are prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And so that's the two different categories. And then at the end of our time together, I want to draw a couple of application points for us as we seek to, in our day and time, apply these truths uh, to our own lives. But it's a fascinating chapter because we have to always keep in mind, and what we're going to see today is that Daniel is perceiving things that are yet to come. They're future events for him. But the first 35 verses for us have already happened. 
And, and so we uh, glean encouragement from that because we know that if the first 35 verses are true, then guess what? The remaining 10 verses that have yet to be fulfilled, of course, will be fulfilled. And, and it also speaks to the amazing nature of God's holy word. It simply is incredible. It's mind-blowing, the accuracy of Daniel chapter 11. And so to put our study in context today, you'll remember from the last uh, few weeks that Daniel had been reading through the book of Jeremiah. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and it detailed the 70 weeks we know to be years, 70 weeks of years that the Jews would be held captive in Babylon. And once the decree was given by King Cyrus for the Jews to return and to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, very few actually went And this caused Daniel to mourn, we see in Daniel chapter 10, and to pray and to fast and to seek the face of God. And as he's doing that, an angel, whom I believe to be Gabriel, delivers him this final vision that's recorded in Daniel 11 and 12. And here's the truth, though. What Daniel received is not what he was hoping for. What Daniel received would uh, be news of the discipline, the continual discipline of Israel, that they would face not only in the very near future, but today and throughout the end of time. Now, a couple of things to realize about this revelation, like I mentioned first to Daniel, what is being revealed is all in the future. What we know now as history, it was future to Daniel. Secondly, it's important to see this chapter in light of the 70 weeks of years at the conclusion of chapter 9. So in other words, the first 69 weeks or the first 69 set of years... Uh, is fulfilled in verses 1 through 35. And then there is this pause before you come to the final set of, se- uh, of one week to complete the 70 weeks revealed to Daniel in, uh, in, in chapter 9 that we know to be a final seven-year period. And so what we are doing right here and right now, we are somewhere between the fulfillment of the first 69 years of Daniel's prophecy and the completion of the final week or the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy. We don't know where in that line that we are, but we are, we are in this great pause. We know this final period of seven years to be the tribulation period, the great tribulation that the Holy Scriptures teach about in the book of Revelation. Now, some of you might be confused about this pause. Why is there this pause between time, this undetermined pause between the completion of these 70 weeks of years? Well, this is not uncommon in Scripture. It's known as a prophetic foreshortening. While the prophets could see things happening in the future, they couldn't determine the timeline or the sequence of those events. In other words, for them, the future was clearly fuzzy. They understood it that was going to come to pass. They just had no reference point as to when. And so what makes this chapter so incredible is the historical accuracy told in advance, which gives us the the ability to believe in what has not yet occurred. In fact, one scholar said that there was 135 specific prophecies in the first 35 verses of this chapter that have already been fulfilled. That's amazing. And this has amazed even skeptics that read the Bible. There are those who do not believe the Bible. They're called skeptics or what I call skeptics. They're skeptical about the Christian faith, skeptical about the truth of God's word. And when they come to Daniel, they read Daniel chapter 11, the first 35 verses, and they go, wow, this has already happened with amazing accuracy. And so the only thing that skeptics can do is say, 
Well, it couldn't be God, right? Because we don't believe in God. So this must have been written after the fact of the events occurring. Well, if that was the case, then there are several different things that were even well beyond where they would place the date of the book that came to be true too. So how do you reconcile that? And they simply can't. The truth of the matter is, is that God has revealed himself and what he has revealed has come to pass with amazing accuracy. And that's what we're going to see in the opening of this chapter. So with that said, let's jump in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 11. It says, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, most people believe, most scholars I read this week, believe that that is a parenthetical statement that actually correlates with the last verse of chapter 10. Well, what's happening in the last verse of chapter 10? The angel speaking to Daniel. And so what this is saying is it's saying that the angel whom I believe to be Gabriel stood Daniel up, encouraged him, and strengthened him to be able to receive this vision. So that's the backdrop. Now let's look at the first part of this chapter, the fulfilled prophecies. What we're going to see in this fulfilled prophecies is we're going to see the, the kingdoms regarding Persia, Greece, and then the rivalry between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdoms of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So if you're familiar with history, this will fall right in line with what you are familiar with. And so let's look at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 11. It says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Now, let me just uh, pause for just a second and tell you this. Uh, we're not going to have the time today to dive into all the historical happenings. And so if that kind of stuff interests you, I have compiled a, uh, an outline, a historical outline and detail that you can download from our website. So starting tomorrow, if you want to visit trinitytx.org slash sermons, uh, you'll click on the title uh, sermon from today and it'll take you to another page where you can listen to the sermon. But there's also be two download options. One of those download options will be my notes that I'm preaching from today. By the way, I post those notes all the time for further study. And I also make references in those notes as to where I get this. I'm not this smart, I promise you, okay? It's just all the different readings. So if you want to jump in uh, in some of those readings, I reference those for you to, to dive into. But then the other downloadable option will be that uh, outline that I have worked to kind of compile and synthesize from other places to give you a framework of this. So if you're interested in that, just know that that'll be a resource that will be on our website. But verse 2 tells us that there will be four kings arise to leadership in Persia following Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus is the ruler in this time period of Daniel, and Daniel's serving in his kingdom. And so there will be four that follow him. Well, we know from historical writings who those four were. They're Cambusus, Cyrus's son, Pseudo-Smyrtus, Darius I, Hastapses, and then the fourth is King Xerxes. Now, for those of you familiar with the Bible, that name Xerxes probably sounds familiar, rings a bell to you. It is the king that is notated in the book of Esther. And that will be vitally important in the deliverance of the Jews. So then the, the angel tells Daniel that Xerxes would become far richer than the previous kings, that, which we know to have been the case. He was the richest king of Persia. And verse 2 also says that he will stir up against the kingdom of Greece. 
We know that to have happened as well. He attacked Greece and lost. While he didn't lose the kingdom then, what he did is he poked the bear. And eventually, 150 years later, Greece would get its revenge on the Persians under the leadership of Alexander the Great. Let's look then at verses 3 and 4. By the way, this is remarkable, (laughs) the way history mimics this very prophecy. Verse 3 and 4, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to authority in which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Well, we know uh, the handwriting on the wall, right? The Persians attack, uh, the Medo-Persian empire attacked the Babylonians, took over rule. Well, we also know from Daniel's visions who came after them, Greece, led by this great king who we know to be the conquering Alexander the Great. It's further proof that this is indeed who the angel is talking about because it says that as soon as he arises, his kingdom shall be broken. In other words, he died right after regaining power of the known world. And it was divided into four different sections. The four winds of heaven, here Daniel says, the north, the south, the east, and the west. But we also know that his kingdom was not given to his posterity. That's a big word, meaning his descendants. Okay, His sons were murdered, and so therefore there was no rightful heir to the throne of Greece. So it was divided amongst his four generals. We know that to be the case from historical writings as well. So not to his posterity. Again, amazing accuracy of foretold events. Verses 5 and 6. And let me preface 5 and 6 for just a second. You're going to read a lot about the king of the north and the king of the south. Okay, Uh, What that is in reference to is it is reference to the kingdom of the Seleucid Empire and the kingdom of the Ptolemaic Empire. These would be north and south of Israel. In fact, let me show you a map real quick. Can we we advance to the map uh, real quick? So you see here uh, the layout of the land in this time period in which Daniel is, is writing. You see the Seleucid Empire to the north and to the east, and then you see the Ptolemaic Kingdom down around where Egypt is, to the south and to the west. And there in the purple dashed lines, uh, you'll see what, is, what city is there. Jerusalem, the holy city. And when you come across uh, directions in scripture, it's always, it, it makes Jerusalem the center of the world, right? Because that's God's holy city. And so anything to the north of Jerusalem is referenced in scripture as being from the north. And anything south of Jerusalem is referenced in being south of uh, Jerusalem. Does this make sense to you guys? And unfortunately, as you guys can see there, that little strip that we know to be Israel, and you see the Gaza Strip there, all of that, is the most highly sought after piece of real estate in the world. Uh, there are uh, religions that lay claim to this, this piece of land, and we know from scriptural writings that it belongs to who? That is God's chosen people. That's his promised land. That belongs to Israel, right? And so that's why we support Israel being a nation there in that area. It's biblical. It's, it was given to, to them, and so we don't mess with it. But all of these worlds are colliding around the north and the south of Jerusalem, and guess what happens in Jerusalem? They feel the profound effects of two kingdoms colliding. And we're going to see the details of all of those effects here in just a moment. Okay, So just as reference point. Now let's look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Then the king of the south, 
the Ptolemaic kingdom, shall become strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. And after some years they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. What this is referencing is it's referencing a very specific alliance made between the northern and the southern kingdoms. When Ptolemy II Philadelphus ruled the southern kingdom and Antiochus II Theos ruled the northern kingdom, a treaty was made to promote peace. And as a seal of this treaty... Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice, was given in marriage to Antiochus Theos. Just one minor problem. He was already married. No problem, he says. I'll divorce my first wife and marry Bernice, and things are copacetic. What do you think the first wife thought about that? Not happy. She winds up killing Bernice, their children, their attendants, just as verse 6 outlined way, way, way before this ever occurred. Again, remember, this is not history for Daniel. This is future. It's history for us and records the amazing accuracy of the prophecy of God. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go to all the details, but you can read from there all the way through verse 20, and you see all these different, the south will rise against the north, the north rises against the south, and that will go for a span of what will be 200 years. Again, if you want a detailed outline of that, download the outline online. I want to fast forward in history to the rise of a king that would specifically persecute the Jews. So skip down to verse 21 of Daniel chapter 11. It says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given, and he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So the northern kingdom, the Seleucid kingdom, arose a contemptible person. This is none other than Antichius Epiphanes. And he obtained the throne, guess what? By means of trickery, or as Daniel wrote down here, by flattery. He was not the rightful heir. And if you've been in our study through Daniel, that name sounds very familiar to you. Uh, To tie this series together, he is the little horn that is mentioned in chapter 8. Remember, there were two little horns in his visions. One had eyes and a mouth. We know to be the the picture, the type of a future Antichrist. Antichius Epiphanes was the little horn in chapter 8 that did not have eyes and a mouth. And we told you the story of what all that he did. But for Daniel, it was outlined in the following verses. He's the contemptible person that brings destruction and persecution to the Jews in verses 29 through 31. Let's read those. Verse 29, it says, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. Well, in 169 B.C., uh, Antichius invaded Egypt, the Ptolemaic kingdom, and that that invasion resulted in Ptolemy IV Philometer being imprisoned. And it ultimately led to an alliance between the southern kingdom and an up-and-coming kingdom known as Rome. And Rome came to the aid of the second invasion of Antichius. And there's this interesting uh, dynamic that happens there. It says this in verse 30. 
when Antichius tried to invade Egypt again, says, for the ships of Kittim, that is a fleet from Rome, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. Well, historical evidence tells us that this conflict did indeed happen and that Rome did indeed stop the invasion. In fact, it is written that the commander of the Roman fleet drew a circle around Antichius and said, make your decision to retreat before you leave this circle or face the wrath of Rome. Well, this was very public and this humiliated Antichius. And so he decided not to invade the Ptolemaic kingdom. And here he is now, he's in the south and he's got to head back home and he's mad and he's embarrassed to the nth degree. And where does he have to go through in order to get home? Jerusalem. And what does he do when he lands in Jerusalem? He decides to take all of his fury, all of his anger, resulting from his embarrassment, out on the Jews. And we know that that is exactly what took place. It says in this, he shall return back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. In other words, Jews that turned their back on Judaism, he would promote them. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Remember what he did? He took away all the Jewish religious religious, uh, um, observances. He made it illegal for them to practice that. He set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of Zeus and smeared swine broth all over the temple in what Jesus would call the abomination of desolation. This is the first time that the temple was was profaned and it's at the hands of Antichius Epiphanes. That is the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11. Again, 130 specific, 35 specific prophecies that have come to pass. Then we turn this page in chapter 11 and we begin to look at what's the future, what has yet to happen for us in what we are calling the unfulfilled prophecy. And so here's what I want to do. In verses 36 through 45, the final 10 verses of this chapter, I'm going to read them. And I want to give you an activity as I read. I want you to take your pen or your pencil, and I want you to either circle, underline, highlight, whatever you want to do. As I read and you follow along in your copy of God's Word, what do you think might be indicators of what is to come? Future events. What are things that that maybe stick out at the page at you, and then we'll talk about some of these things together. Okay, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God, and he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods, and he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these." A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest forces, fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. And he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. 
But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hands against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and of all precious things of Egypt, and with the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. But news to destroy, uh, or but news from the east and from the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his tent, palatial tents, between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now the reason why most scholars believe these 10 verses is some futuristic event is the inability to tie the detail of these verses to a specific historical event. So in other words, the detail that you have that has been met with history in the first 35 chapters is not present in the remaining 10. Therefore, we're left to believe that this is some future event and we're in the pause of the 70 weeks right now. Another reason that this points to not having been fulfilled is the context clue in verse 40. Verse 40 says, at the time of the end. In other words, Daniel understood this perhaps to be a skip in time past the 69 years. That at the end of, at the time of the end places this prophecy still for us in the apocalyptic category, meaning the time of the end of the world. So if this refers to some future event, what do these 10 verses refer to? Well, these verses detail the rise and the fall of who we know to be the Antichrist. The future outlined by Daniel in the first 35 verses is clear and fulfilled. From verse 36 on, the future is clearly fuzzy. In other words, there are things we can gather from these 10 verses, but things that we do not know with absolute certainty. And so what I want to do is I want to give my, do my best to give you what we know to be certain about this labeled Antichrist, so that we can be perceptive of what this person might do and might be. But let me be very clear. I do not know who this person is, nor do I know the time frame in which he will come. In fact, I would argue this. Any scholar or any Bible teacher that would tell you they know precisely who this is and precisely the time in which they would come is a false teacher. Right? These are things we do not know. But there are things that we can perceive about what this person might do. And so I want to teach you those. First of all this, let me say this. Scripture is clear in both the Old and the New Testaments. There's harmony here between the New Testaments. That there will be a seven-year period of great tribulation that will one day come to the world. Jesus talked about this time period. And he tied his return to this very seven-year period. And for Daniel, the 70 weeks, this fits into the last week or the last seven years. And the key event that marks these seven years is this person coming on the scene known as the Antichrist. And at that time, the Jews will be able to rebuild the temple because they will form a covenant between Israel and this Antichrist. Now, there is debate as to when the rapture would happen. If you're new to church, and that word rapture, you might say, what does that mean? It's a word that details when Jesus is going to come back and take his bride and take it back with him into glory, right? It's called the rapture of the church, the taking away of 
the church. There's debate on whether when that is going to happen in reference to the seven-year period of tribulation. There are some people that believe that it will happen at the very first of the tribulation. Jesus will come back, boom, the seven years will start, and then at the end of that, the the war of Armageddon, and Jesus becomes victorious, right? And all the other events that play out in the book of Revelation. There are others that would suggest a mid-trib uh, rapture, meaning that, that believers would have to endure the first three and a half years, which would be years of prosperity, and then at the middle of that, then the, the church would be raptured. Others believe that it's at the end of the seven-year period of time. I have my own personal preferences. I'd love to take you to coffee to talk about them and why, uh, but it's really irrelevant, right? Because it's going to play out however God has intended to play out. Now, there's, it's one of those things that we lovingly debate, but we never divide on. But there are two things that are absolutely true. Two things that we should know with absolute certainty. The first is this, Jesus is coming back. If there's any confusion as to whether or not Jesus or any doubt as to whether or not Jesus is coming back, the first 35 verses should clear that up for you. Because of the historical accuracy of those prophecies, that which is to come will be certain. The second thing is this, is that the rise of the Antichrist will be a key indicator of Jesus' return. Now, in verses 36 through 39, we get a description of this person called the Antichrist. And then in verses 40 through 45, we see what happens to him. So let's first look at the description of the Antichrist that's recorded in Daniel's vision. Throughout Scripture and also here, the Antichrist is assigned 25 different names. When you come across these names, more than likely it's referring to this individual. These names include the beast, the lawless one, the son of perdition, and the man of sin, along with many others. For Daniel, he was the little horn with an eyes and a mouth in chapter 7. Verse 36 of Daniel 11 tells us that he will be very prideful. It says that he will uh, exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He will also become very successful. This will be a very successful individual. He will amass military might, and he will make alliances with other nations of military strength. This uh, is the reference to honoring the gold of fortresses in verse 38. We know that he will have a religious heritage. That's what it says in verse 37, because it says he will turn his back upon the God of his fathers. He will deny them. He'll turn his back on that faith tradition that he was raised in. And then he will invade other countries and eventually invade Israel. The mentioning of the glorious land in verse 41 is a direct reference to the nation of Israel. He will eventually set up his home base between the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and the glorious holy mountain, probably Mount Moriah. He will continue to conquer nations to the south. Evidently, Egypt is not out of being conquered. And this Antichrist, we we also learn, will force people into submission under his leadership by cutting off supplies to only those that have received the mark of the beast. And let me be clear, this will be a time that will be far worse than any other time period in history. When the Antichrist is loosened and takes over reign and rule, it will be the worst time period the world has ever known. But then verse 45. Check this out. He will meet his match. Who's his match? The return of King Jesus. In a great battle known as the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation, Jesus will bring the Antichrist to his end. He is no match 
for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he will ultimately be destroyed and banished forever, he and Satan, to eternal doom and the lake of fire forever and ever. Amen. We know the end of the story, and so we can have hope. No matter what we endure, we know the end of the story. Now, people often ask, who is this man? Who is this Antichrist? Where will he come from? These are questions I do not know. But I would tell you this, probably in every generation, there has been a supposed Antichrist. You know, as, as I read those events in Daniel, outlined in Daniel chapter 11, I'm thinking, dude, Hitler measured up against a lot of these, right? I'm sure preachers back in the, in the 20s and 30s were talking about this man named Hitler potentially being the Antichrist. And so he, but he didn't fulfill all of them. And so we, while we do have clues, we don't know who he is. I don't know if he's currently alive. I don't know if he's yet to be born. I don't know any of that. But we have clues as to what he would do. And so we've got to read God's word, judge everything according to his word, look for clues, but ultimately just trust the stirring of the Holy Spirit that resides within you. Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. God's got it. But just be perceiving, right? And watch God do his, his thing. Okay, so which leads me to a couple of application points. In the time that we have left, I want to mention two points of application, two ways that we apply this, that I apply this to my life today. The first is this, trust God's sovereignty. If this passage tells us anything, it tells us that God is sovereign. In other words, he knows everything and he's in control of everything. To God, the future is history. God already knows it. He knows every detail. And the detail by which God reveals the future to Daniel is proof that he's got it under wraps. And his specific revelation and prophecy and the historical occurrences of those prophecies shows us that God is moving history in one direction. That's the sovereignty of God. Now, if we take that, it would be easy for us to say, well, if God is moving all of history in one direction, then are we just puppets on a string? Are we just robots and he makes decisions for us? No. While God is sovereign, moving history in one direction, you and I are still morally responsible for our choices and lack thereof our choices. Okay, Let me illustrate it like this. I came across this illustration from another preacher. How many of you guys have ever been on a cruise? You ever gone on a cruise? Okay. Greatest thing since sliced bread, right? And so you're on this cruise, and this is big, giant ship, and there's all kinds of choices that you can make. Choices in food, choices in activities, choices in behavior, right? Some people make really poor choices in behavior on a cruise. But there's all these choices that each person can make for themselves. But guess what? There is a captain of the ship that is taking the ship only to one destination, and none of the choices that are made within the context of that ship can change the direction of where that ship is going. This is what it means to call God sovereign, that he's moving history in one direction. So if God is moving history in one direction, what is that direction that he's moving it in? Well, he's moving it in ultimately the establishment of his kingdom forever, the new heaven and the new earth, where everything will be made perfect, we will regain that which was created in Eden and we will live in harmony with God forever in his kingdom and the enemy will be banished and defeated forever and ever, right? That's where things are headed. And we have 
the freedom to make choices as history is headed in that direction. And so we'll be held accountable for our choices that we make or the choices that we don't make. If we don't choose to follow Jesus, then we'll be held accountable for that. But I hope that that allows you to see this truth, that as we perceive the events occurring around us, we can ultimately trust that God's in control of the direction of the world. And we can rest. When you read the news headlines, you don't have to get panicked. You know why? God's got it. When we, when we feel the effects of things that are changing in our world around us, you don't have to panic. Why? God's got it. Look to the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. Does he not provide everything for them? How much more so will he provide for you and for me? And so when we, when we perceive the, the prophecy, we can just say, hey, God, I'm so glad that you're at the helm. You're directing all of history, and I trust you in it. That's trusting God's sovereignty. The second application point is this. Get ready. Get ready. In 1996, Christian singer Crystal Lewis recorded a song that has never lost its relevance to me. In fact, the the older I get, the more meaning it has for me. The title of the song is, People Get Ready, Jesus is Coming. In the song, the chorus pleads the listeners to quote, People get ready, Jesus is coming, soon we'll be going home. People get ready, Jesus is coming, to take from the world his own. But she begins the song with this opening verse. She says, Lord, I'm ready now. I'm waiting for your triumphant return. You're coming so soon. This world has nothing for me, so I find my peace and joy solely in you, only you. Now, I don't know what motivated Crystal Lewis to want to record that song, but as I read Daniel chapter 11 and the close of Daniel I imagine that Daniel is praying a very similar prayer. Come, Lord God, come. And the reason why I believe that is because from the men who give us apocalyptic literature, Daniel in the Old Testament, the Apostle John in the New Testament, these are two men that seem to not buy in to panic. They seem to be resolved, calm. Understanding that God is in control. And so much so that the book of Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21 read this. This is the Apostle John. It says, He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. To which John replies, Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Why was Daniel and why was John so eager for God to come? Have you ever been around someone that seems to be eager for Jesus' return? You know, every phone conversation, I know my parents are joining us online, every phone conversation with my parents always ends with, Jesus is coming. they're, They're so eager, they're ready for it. But you know why people are ready for it? Because they're sick of what this world has to offer us. 
and ready for what Jesus is bringing whenever he's coming to establish his kingdom. And they have this sense of being ready, anticipating. Now, I don't know what this stirs up in your heart. Let me just be a little bit transparent to you, okay? Uh, This talk of Jesus coming again, maybe the world coming to an end, the establishment of a new heaven, new earth, I mean, just laying bare. I'm not... I'm not the Apostle John. Can't even come close. Can't hold his sandals. And there is a little bit of anxiety in my heart. You know why? Because I, I want to see my grandkids. I mean, my kids look like Kathy, praise the Lord, so they've got hope to get married, right? <laughs> and I, I want to see my grandkids. I want to know my grandkids. I want to, I want to have fun and, you know, do all of those things. I'm really excited about that. But here's the conclusion I come to. Even my excitement about that pales in comparison to what Jesus is bringing. And so I'm okay. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Because in him, the things that we think satisfy in this world will no longer satisfy in the presence of Jesus. And so let's get ready now. Let's turn our attention to him now. Let's not seek the fulfillment of the things of this world now. Let's turn and let's trust the sovereignty of God and let's get ready for him to come. Whether that be in our lifetime or generations past us, let's live in light of the fact that Jesus is on the throne, that God is in control. Amen? So the heart of this pastor is twofold. I so desire the return of Jesus. The perfection that awaits his triumphant victory over the enemy once and for all. And I so desire for you to know him too. That's my heart. The other side of this get ready question is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Scripture tells us that that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of our sin, what we earn because of our sinful, errant ways, is death. And on the day that Jesus comes, he will sort people into one of two categories. Those that are his, and those that are not his. To those that are not his, he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. But to those that are his, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. On that day, what will Jesus say to you? Are you ready for that day? You might say, well, Pastor Chris, I don't know if I'm ready for that day. How do I know if I'm ready for that day? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know how you could be ready for that day? By bowing the knee, surrendering your heart to King Jesus, trusting in the finished work of the cross. And in that moment, you may be saved. Enjoy a relationship with Almighty God. So where are you? If you were to be called home now, which line would you be in? You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. 
If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.